Welcome to Hacking Your ADHD. I'm your host, William Kerb, and I have ADHD. On this podcast, I dig into the tools, tactics, and best practices to help you work with your ADHD brain. Hey team, this week I'm talking with the founder of the Inattentive ADHD Coalition and author of Living with Inattentive ADHD, Climbing the Circular Staircase of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, Cynthia Hammer. In our conversation today, we discuss Cynthia's journey with late diagnosis of inattentive ADHD and critical lessons that she's learned along the way. We also explore the challenges of recognizing ADHD, dispel some common myths, and emphasize the importance of early diagnosis. From overcoming critical self-talk to self-publishing her memoir, Cynthia shares valuable insight on living with ADHD and creating a brighter future for those of us in the neurodivergent community. If you'd like to follow along on the show notes page, you can find that at hackingyouradhd.com slash 153. All right, keep on listening to find out how we can make our way up the circular staircase. To get started here, could you give me a little quick introduction about yourself and let me know what we're here to discuss? My name is Cynthia Hammer. I guess I should disclose my age, but I'm almost 80. In one week, I'll turn 80. And when I was 49 years old, I got diagnosed with inattentive ADHD. Shortly after that, I started a nonprofit called ADD Resources because when I got diagnosed, I thought I was the only adult in the U.S. who knew they had ADHD. That turned out not to be true. There were a few others, but I was near the beginning. So I wanted to help other adults learn about their ADHD. That's why I started that nonprofit. And I ran it for 15 years. But during COVID, I decided to write a book. And in doing that, I wanted to get back and learn about ADHD. And that's when I found out that the children with the inattentive type were still being underdiagnosed. And the adults with the inattentive type were being misdiagnosed with depression or anxiety. And according to Dr. Dotson, they often delayed their diagnosis by six years by pursuing the depression or anxiety. So beyond not getting diagnosed as children, even when they pursue help as an adult, they're still not getting properly diagnosed. So in March of 2021, I decided to start a new nonprofit, and it's called the Inattentive ADHD Coalition. And our mission was that children with inattentive ADHD would be diagnosed by age eight, and adults would be readily and correctly diagnosed when they sought help. So we existed for maybe two and a half years now without a lot of direction. We had this mission, but the way I was handling it is just put out information as often as possible about inattentive ADHD. Try to contact school counselors, school social workers, put out information about inattentive ADHD. And we recently had someone join our board who is very knowledgeable and very helpful. We're working through a book called Traction. And instead of having such a broad focus, we're narrowing it down. And we're really excited about our new focus. We might even have to change our name. But our new focus is all children should be screened for ADHD before they end the second grade. And screening should be recommended for the parents mm -hmm. anytime a child is diagnosed with ADHD. Those two things are our new focus. It gives me chills to think about that that would happen, but I'm sure you know the rationale that we're finding out first, which we always knew, that ADHD is pretty common. It's the most common 
neurobiological order of childhood. And the second thing we've learned from Dr. Barkley's research and others is that we're at risk for a lot of problems in our lives if we're undiagnosed. Earlier deaths, alcoholism, drug abuse, low income, poor academic achievement. It's just a lot of reasons that this condition needs to be discovered in children as early as possible. Yeah, I can see there's a lot there. And this is just making me think of like, yeah, I remember taking like hearing tests when I was in school and having something similar to help identify conditions which go largely unrecognized because the inattentive side of ADHD isn't the disruptive side that's causing problems for people typically. It's causing problems for yourself, but fewer problems for authority figures. Right. And what Dr. Orrin Mason said is that, well, we know that children with ADHD on average are diagnosed by age seven, but they're only talking about the ones that get diagnosed. And those are the hyperactive ones. And what Dr. Orrin Mason says is the teachers, when the school year starts, they're kind of picking out the children that are having problems. And the quiet child that's sitting there daydreaming is not picked up. Mm -hmm. So he was advising those teachers to be on the alert. And what our organization is trying to do is gather together the kind of behaviors that people should be looking for, because our belief is it's not that you can't see it. It's that we haven't been looking for it. And that if you know what to look for, you're going to see it. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm remembering that inattentive is also a more common condition in girls who have also been overlooked for ADHD symptoms for a long time as well. I think it's true, but I don't know it's true. We don't have research to say that. I've read some places they think there are boys and men that have the inattentive type as much as the women. I know there are men with inattentive type. Mm -hmm. I got to interview 24 of them, but I know there are women with the combined type. Mm -hmm. And that's what I interviewed 25 women with combined type because I wondered how do they differ from the women with the inattentive type. The first thing that really surprised me is that they went undiagnosed too. And even though they had hyperactivity because of cultural norms, they suppressed it. They said, one girl told me she bit the inside of her cheek to keep herself being still. Some others said, I learned to get up and sharpen the pencil when I was restless or to ask to go to the bathroom. They learned to moderate their physical hyperactivity so that it was more socially acceptable. But our feeling now is the only children that are really getting diagnosed is the pool of children who are physically hyperactive and disruptive in the classroom. And beyond that, you're very lucky if you got diagnosed. Absolutely. Because if you're not causing problems, they're not looking to do stuff. Having gone through talking with my children's schools about IEPs and stuff, they're like, if they're not disruptive, we're not going to be doing much of anything for you. So you're saying they don't really care about the child being successful? Not particularly. That has not been my experience at all. Well, the two discouraging parts we've heard, separate from what you're saying, is that school districts are reluctant to identify children with possible ADHD because it's going to cost them more money. Mm -hmm. And so we first thought, well, let's educate teachers so they can recognize it more. But there's this 
pressure on them not to recognize it. So then we thought we need to work with the doctors, get them to screen the children. And someone told us recently that doctors don't want to do it either because they lack the knowledge. Yeah. (laughs) And that's a problem back to medical schools where they don't have this in their curriculum or psychiatry schools where we're told they only have one hour on ADHD when it's such a common neurodivergent condition. Yeah, there's an amazing lack of information, too, that is associated with the diagnosis. One of the more interesting pieces I found when doing research on ADHD was looking a lot into executive dysfunction and realizing that that isn't included anywhere in ADHD diagnosis. And yet it is one of the things that is most commonly referred to as a problem, because when you look at the symptoms of executive dysfunction, you look at ADHD, it's like a circle in a Venn diagram. And Dr. Barkley, that is what he's saying now is that we're starting to understand that ADHD is really the problems with executive function. And they taught that the school could relate to that more. They would understand that the child needs to get skills in their executive function to be better in school. And the other part he mentioned was the emotional dysregulation that is common in children with ADHD. The knowledge is evolving, but the DSM isn't keeping up. I understand. They want to be very conservative in how they're changing things because... You don't want to change back again. Unless we have really definitive evidence of a certain thing, changing the DSM just leads to confusion because we still have so many people that use the term ADD, even though mid-80s is when that left the DSM? Well, when I got diagnosed, it was called ADD. And I have to go through my script sometime to change it all to ADHD, even though I didn't say that. I said ADD, just because that's how my brain learned it, I guess. It was funny. I was doing another thing and I found the reference to hyperkinesthesia, which was previous iteration of ADD. Well, then there was a minimal brain dysfunction before that. Which is Often interesting because people are like, oh, ADHD was made up at a certain point. And you're like, no, it was just called something different. First, I wanted to go back and say something that I was surprised when you were saying people misunderstand ADHD. Okay. So the women that I interviewed, a lot of them only discovered their ADHD recently. And although we are kind of critical of TikTok and everyone being a charlatan trying to market something. Mm -hmm. At least a third of the women I interviewed learned about their ADHD or got educated about it from TikTok and Instagram. And the surprising thing, some of them said they had heard of ADHD, but their concept only was the hyperactive child. And by only having that concept, it prevented them from ever seeking a diagnosis. So that's another downside of having it so widely misunderstood is it's preventing people from being able to recognize that this might be a condition I have. Absolutely. I mean, and you look at where do people want people to learn about ADHD, if not the social media platforms? Ah. They're not going to be reading textbooks and things about ADHD. <laughs> yes. And pop culture is going to give them the worst idea of what it is. That's what I'm concluding is that you need to have it on TikTok or Instagram. Or if you're doing a podcast, what I've been told is some people listen to it at double speed. That's the only way they can listen to podcasts. Have you heard that? I don't listen to most of my stuff at double speed, but I do (laughs) listen to it at like one and a half to 1.25 a lot of the time. Yeah. I'll like start something up. I'm like, wow, 
what is up with their intro music? Oh, I'm listening to it this way faster than it's supposed to be. I see. Yeah. That and the other cue I get that I'm listening to things too fast is when people laugh does not translate well to faster speeds. Ah, makes it higher or something? Yeah, or- it makes it higher, like little chipmunky laughs. And you're like, oh, I remember I sent a friend a video that had been sped up. And then they're like, man, I can't watch that going that fast. And I'm like, Oh, I didn't realize. So I want to give a shout out that Dr. Hallowell has a lot of TikTok short things. I made a friend who is a psychiatrist trained in Stanford. He has both autism and ADHD, and he is starting on TikTok. He has his first one up, and his name is Dr. Choi, MD. Awesome. I'll have to look it up. So I want to encourage people to find the reliable sources on TikTok, I think it can be helpful and it's probably a good thing for people with ADHD, but be careful who you're listening to. Yeah, it's absolutely imperative to question any information we're getting because some of it's really not reliable. Mm-hmm. I was surprised at the amount of good information I've seen on TikTok. I've certainly seen a fair share of bad information, but a lot of being like, hey, this is what executive dysfunction is. These are silly things that people with ADHD do. Then that's fine to be like, okay, yeah, I do weird sway walk while I'm walking through places (laughs) rather than walking straight. I see. Yeah. I saw a mem the other day that I just want to save and it says, I'm a master in partial arts. (laughs) Yeah, we should also talk a little bit about your book that's coming out. Yeah, it came out on August 29th. And I was told three different times it was coming out. It was coming out in March. No, it was coming out in May. No, came out in August. It got so I was frustrated telling people it was coming out because to me, being honest is really important. So I said it was embarrassing for me that it wasn't coming out when it should. But the name of the book is Living with Inattentive ADHD, Climbing the Circular Staircase of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It's a memoir about my life, but it also is a self-help book because I improved my life both before and after I knew my diagnosis, but I didn't have coaching. I didn't have therapy. It was things I learned and read and did for myself. And when Dr. Ferrone read the manuscript, he suggested I include information about ADHD at the end of each chapter. So I embellished it with the myths about ADHD and providing the corrective information for a lot of the myths that are out there. What were some of the myths that you found really interesting there? Some of the myths are bad parenting. Mm Mm-hmm medication is dangerous or it should be as a last resort. Only hyperactive little white boys get diagnosed. You can't be smart if you have ADHD. You know, you can't have a college degree if you have ADHD. Yeah, there's some definitely things for people like, yeah, you're successful. You can't have ADHD. And it's like, what? Well, even people say when they went to get diagnosed, If you said, I'm in graduate school, they right away said, you can't have ADHD. And someone else I interviewed, Alan Brown, he said, when he went to the doctor, the doctor said ADHD doesn't exist. ADD doesn't exist. And he told Alan to go do work on crossword puzzles. Oh, well, that's... That's helpful. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Crossword. That's... Thanks. I'm cured. (laughs) I was 
looking at the high capacity programs for schools now and what they were describing as who excels best. In, and I was just like, there are so many neurodivergent traits in this like list of what a high capacity student is. And high capacity is like the new gifted program. Yeah, I was going to say it's a new term for the old thing. And it's just something where you go, oh, there are a lot of gifted students who have ADHD, but they often get left behind in normal classrooms because they're not being challenged enough. And this isn't to say that everyone with ADHD is automatically very smart. It's just they have, I find people with ADHD tend to, when they are put in a learning environment where they are stimulated, they do very well. What I agree with is what Dr. Barkley said is that the intelligence is just on a normal curve and the ADHD is a separate thing. The range of intelligence is like it is for everyone. Yeah. And the ADHD is a separate layer. And we know only about 20% of adults from research have been diagnosed with ADHD. So there's a lot of people out there who have ADHD, they might be in the prisons that have ADHD mm -hmm. undiagnosed. So what I'm theorizing is that the 20% are the ones who were more academically gifted or more intelligent because they're the ones who figured it out. Yeah. And so we have a skewed sample when we think people with ADD are really intelligent because we're looking at the ones that got diagnosed. The only point I was trying to make is that when you put people with ADHD in the right environment, they excel. Yes. Regardless, just because when they're in the wrong environment, it's the opposite effect where everything is harder and you do have a lot of bad outcomes. Right. Well, if you get into areas where you have choices and you can pursue your interests, then you're going to shine. And probably the gifted program allows for more of that. And that's what I think the neurodivergent movement is about is creating environments that are more inclusive so children can demonstrate their knowledge in different ways and show that they are smart in different ways than the cookie cutter ways that we've been expected to do in the past. Yeah, it's certainly something where having that diagnosis is very helpful to tell us what we should be doing moving forward, what kind of options we should be looking for. Right. That's back to why we want children to be diagnosed early. So many people, these 25 women I interviewed, I went and asked them the 18 symptoms of ADHD. And a lot of them had all the symptoms most of their life. Then they got diagnosed. And I asked them, some of them were diagnosed for a couple of years, some of them for many years. I asked them, how many of these symptoms do you have now? Some of them had all the same symptoms. There were just a few that were less. But the biggest difference for them is they now knew what they were dealing with and they were less judgmental. That's what made a big difference for a lot of them. One of the uh, funny thing I always come back to is when people are like, we don't want to give someone a label. And I'm like, they're going to have a label. It's just whether or not it's something they can do anything about. Yeah, I read that online. That's another thing I often talk about is the labels your child will get is lazy, inconsiderate, procrastinator, not concerned, not living up to their potential. Are those better labels than saying she has a different brain wiring that we're able to help in 
new ways because we know. Because otherwise you're labeled with just character flaws, which sure you could work on, but that's all about just trying harder, which is, in my experience, a really poor method of getting things done. Just trying harder does not typically get me better results. I wondered if I could talk a little bit about the journey I took in writing the book, because maybe you have people that are interested in writing something. And I have to say, it's not easy. Yeah. After I wrote the manuscript and decided I wanted to try to get it published, I submitted it to 50 places, trying to keep track. And of all of those, I think I heard back from five, and they were all rejections. And during COVID, and maybe it continues to be that way, but it became much easier to apply to places because you could do it all online through your email. Mm-hmm. Before that, you'd have to Xerox everything. It's a proposal. It might be like 20 pages long talking about the book and uh, the market potential, all this stuff. I was just about ready to give up and self-publish when I, someone called me. But once you give it to a publisher, and I didn't read the contract very well, of the price on the book, I get about 10%. percent mm. That's what the author gets. And for the book I wrote, all the profits are going to the nonprofit organization. Between signing the contract and the book actually get published, it was almost two years. I'm just letting that out there. And if someone were to do it again, I would say if you have your own market, if you know you're going to have a readership, I don't know if you achieve a lot by having a publisher. You lose a lot of the revenue by having the publisher. Yeah, publishers are great for some things, but not for others. From what I understand, they can open up some doors that self-publishing wouldn't open up. But if you're not going on a book tour or anything, that's also not going to be something you need. I don't know. Maybe different publishers do different things. And I think it depends on how much the publisher, like now there's a woman online. If she has a huge, huge following, the publisher comes to them. They want to publish a book of someone who has a huge following because they know they have a ready market and they will promote that person. But the other way around, most publishers, you're still on your own to promote your book. Oh, wow. You can't count on them to be doing much for me. The publisher that I work with, they send out a blast email to like 2000 places, you know, a press release. Well, maybe they paid for those resources where they send the press release. From them, I have gotten exactly two things to do. Yeah. You know, the rest are things I found on my own. And like, I'll be giving an author presentation at what's curious for me now, interrupting myself, but the places that I'm speaking, like I'm going to be on a live event with Facebook tomorrow. The person responded the the press release from the publisher because she herself has inattentive ADHD. I'm going to be giving an author presentation at the UW bookstore October 23rd, and that person has inattentive ADHD. Mm. You have ADHD. You know, I think we need to create a sister and brotherhood where we're helping each other because there's a need to get good information out about ADHD. And that's part of what your commitment is. Yeah. We got together through email from each other because we previously talked and it was very easy to be like, oh yeah, let's do this. And yeah, if I ever wanted to 
publish anything for myself. I already have a great platform for promoting it. Right. Yeah. And so I think there are a lot of authors that self-publish now. I don't think it makes a difference. They say, well, I guess where it made a difference for me is I do have reviews from my book from well-known people in the ADHD field. And I know for Dr. Hallowell, he would never write a book review for someone who was not published by a publisher. And I don't think I could have gotten some of the people to read my book if I didn't say it was by a publisher. But I don't know now that it's in the marketplace if that makes much difference. Mm -hmm. Do you care that Dr. Hallowell or Dr. Verone or Dr. Ramsey or Kathleen Nadeau wrote blurbs for my book? Probably not. When I do look at a number of like resources online for ADHD, there is, as we were saying earlier, you know, there is a wealth of misinformation out there. So being able to be, say, hey, there uh, is this uh, credibility associated with having those names there as well, though. Yes. Yeah, that's true. But people have to recognize the names to start with. Yeah, that's that's true. Like, I mean, like, I'm like, oh, I recognize some of those names, but not all. It's been fun. We like learning new things. And that was something new to learn. And the other thing that's been fun for me is when I ran the nonprofit, the first one, ADD Resources, everything was in person. We had in-person support groups. We were doing a newsletter that we mailed to people. We were having a lending library of audio tapes. And if you were a member, we would mail you audio tapes that you'd mail back to us. And when you think about people with ADD, it was surprising that they mailed the things back. We didn't lose our possessions. Mm -hmm. And then we were having national conferences where people would come and speak. Now... With this new organization, everything is online. I had to learn all of this new stuff. And I sometimes have to rely on younger people to tell me how it all works. Yeah. But I mean, it's also that much more accessible for people now, too. Oh, I think, yeah, you reach a broader audience. It feels like there's a lot more competition, though. Yes. I mean, back when we were doing it, there weren't too many places to get information about ADHD. So, you kind of had a corner on the market in a way. Yeah. And now I think you're, it takes a while. That's what I'm should saying. It takes a while, more than a, two years. All right. Well, I think we're coming up on time here. Is there anything you want to leave the audience with? And I will be sure to also include links to your book and stuff in the show notes as well. So, well, what I think are the two key things if you're gotten diagnosed with ADHD is first to focus on stopping your critical self-talk, to become mm -hmm. aware of it and to stop it, and then eventually to work on having positive self-talk. That is the goal. And the other thing is I think people with ADHD, once we realize areas where we're struggling, we attempt to fix too many things at once. <laughs> and that's what I would encourage people is to take one thing at a time. That's why I talk about the circular staircase, because you are you should take one step and improve and coalesce that improvement and then take the next step. And slowly you'll rise to the top of the staircase. I definitely know the uh, trying to do too much at once. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh, some excellent advice for getting through anything, really, but especially with ADHD. And I guess the other thing that people don't realize is that it's really a journey and don't think it's going to just be a year. It's usually three to five years before you actually feel like you're on top and that your life is going the way you want it to. Mm-hmm. And even then, it's you're going to still have speed bumps. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thanks again to Cynthia for coming on the show. And be sure to check out her book, Living with Inattentive ADHD. Before you go, though, let's do a quick rundown of today's top tips. One, avoid trying to fix everything at once. Instead, prioritize one thing at a time for improvement. ADHD management is a journey and a gradual process. Two, social media platforms like TikTok and Instagram can be valuable resources for information and support for ADHD. However, we do need to be discerning in choosing reliable sources and avoid misinformation. Three, focus on becoming aware of your critical self-talk and work on replacing negative thoughts with positive self-talk. Self-compassion is a crucial piece for managing your ADHD effectively. That's it. Thanks for listening. I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode. Feel free to connect with me over at hackingyouradhd.com slash contact. If you'd like links or to read this episode's transcript, you can go to the show notes page at hackingyouradhd.com slash 151. If you'd like to support the show, the best way to do so is to tell someone about it, especially if you think a particular episode would resonate with them. Just click the share button on your podcast player. Or you can consider supporting me on Patreon. Just go to hackingyouradhd.com slash Patreon to find out more. And now for your moment of dad. What do pirates wear under their clothes? Plunderware.